0: you're listening to audio from Cities church you can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com do you ever come to worship and consider how dangerous it is driving to church with your family do you find yourself double and triple checking to make sure that everyone has done everything to properly prepare When you enter the sanctuary, do you make sure your kids are by your side lest they run off and enter the wrong building or cross the wrong threshold and a plague break out in the church? As we spend a few weeks considering the construction of Israel's tabernacle and forms of worship, we should really feel the difference between the way that we approach worship and the way that they had to approach worship. We should ask ourselves, what can we as New Covenant Christians learn from these passages? We no longer gather in tents, or temples for that matter. Worship is not restricted to one location as it was in the Old Testament. Like in the Old Testament, the people went to the place because the place was set apart as holy. In the New Testament, the place can in some sense be considered holy because the people who are holy are there. Get that? We don't come to this building because this building is inherently special. Instead, this building is special because this is where we are. Like, the place is special because the people are there. That's different. And we've met in many different locations, school auditoriums, movie theaters, college campuses, and that's as it should be under the new covenant. But the old covenant was different. Like, in the history of God's people, we can see how the forms of worship change. Like, so if we were here in Exodus, if we were to look back, we can see in Genesis that God's people worshiped at altars scattered around wherever they roamed. Throughout the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they set up temporary altars and offered sacrifices and worship to Yahweh upon them. The land of Canaan was littered with these sites, places where God had revealed Himself to the patriarchs in particular ways. And then if we were to jump forward from the Pentateuch, we see that God intends that the people would one day establish a permanent site of worship, a a place for His name. Like eventually David would select the spot and his son Solomon would build the great temple which would stand for hundreds of years before being destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed again, rebuilt again in the time of Jesus. And this section of Exodus gives us a kind of in-between. The tabernacle is more formal and centralized than the worship of the patriarchs, but not as formal and centralized as Solomon's temple. It's the form of worship that will mark Israel in her wilderness wanderings, in her early efforts to conquer the land of Canaan. So, why are we paying attention to this in-between phase of worship? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that Israel's worship, and particularly the worship at the tabernacle, was a shadow of new covenant worship. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, the book of Hebrews says, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Later, the book of Hebrews mentions that the various divisions and furnishings in the tabernacle identify some of the symbolism in them. So, my main goal this morning is to summarize and to help you get a sense of this structure. And a few ways that worship at this structure shapes, points to, and anticipates our own. Now, there was a brief moment when I was preparing where I considered throwing a picture or a video of the tabernacle up there, which if you guys know me in terms of how I think about PowerPoints and things like that in worship, it was it was it was dicey. I, I couldn't believe I actually considered it, but I got over it. I thought about showing the tabernacle, its layout, the furnishings, but here's the deal. I actually, and I thought that would help you to get a sense because you don't worship in something like that. But then I realized that for the vast majority of the Israelites, they never saw the inside of the tabernacle, ever. All they saw was a large courtyard with a tent inside of it. That's it, other than the Levites, They never made it past the bronze altar. And of the Levites, other than a handful of priests, no one ever went inside the tent. And of the priests, only one ever got to go all the way in. And so the truth is that what you have in your Bible is more or less the same as what most Israelites had over 3,000 years ago. Sure, they had a greater appreciation of sacrifice. The blood and the fire and the smell of death that hung over the tabernacle and its courtyard were certainly vivid to them in a way that they are not to us. But if we listen to the description of the tabernacle in faith, we will find ourselves in a real way united across time and space with those early worshipers of Yahweh, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, our passage begins with contributions for the building. And this is somewhat strange, okay? These people have been slaves in Egypt. Where are they going to get all of this gold and silver and onyx stones and fine linens and so forth? And the Bible has a ready answer. You remember when Israel left Egypt, they didn't go out empty-handed. The Egyptians sent them out with gold and silver and fine linens and oxen and sheep and livestock as gifts. And so they plundered the Egyptians just as God had promised Moses in Exodus 3. Exodus 11, Exodus 12. And now you see why God called His people to plunder the Egyptians of their gold so that they could build the house of God. Let me just insert a little parenthesis here. I can't resist here about what I do for a living. As many of you know, I'm the president of Bethlehem College and Seminary. And at Bethlehem, we don't only study the Bible. We study great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the Great Commission. So, we don't just read Moses and Isaiah and Peter and Paul. We study Plato and Aristotle and Shakespeare and not to mention Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Edwards and Milton and Austin and Dostoevsky. And when we study these flawed thinkers, and especially those who were not Christian, this is what we're doing. We're seeking to plunder the Egyptians in order to build the house of God. We're seeking to take Egyptian gold and repurpose it for service to God's people and it's not an easy task. It requires wisdom and skill and craftsmanship and a heart devoted to God alone. Because as we'll see in a few chapters, Egyptian gold can be used to build more than a mercy seat and a golden lampstand. Egyptian gold can be used to build an Egyptian golden calf. And so there are dangers on all sides. But this metaphor is still potent and useful. All truth is God's truth because He is the only true God. All truth is God's truth because Jesus is the truth, and so we can receive the truth no matter the source, provided it is really the truth, and we know it's the truth if we compare it to the heavenly pattern. We find that truth in the great… we find truth in the great books when we read them in light of the greatest book. Let's close a little parenthesis there. Now, we see the contributions for building the tabernacle were also voluntary, and this too is important. These people had been forced to build Pharaoh's cities, Pharaoh's house, as slaves. When Pharaoh was their master, they were forced to give and give and give some more, but now they've been liberated from the house of slavery, and they serve a new master. And their new master doesn't just want their labor. He's after their heart. He doesn't want compelled service. He wants willing service. So God says to them, that wealth that you plundered from the Egyptians, it's yours. It's all yours. It's a gift to you. But I want you to know I am building a house for my name so that I can dwell among you. And so give as you're led. Give as you're able. Give as you're willing. And let me just say that that's how the pastors here think about giving as well. As you consider giving to the needs of this church, that's how we think. Give as you're able, give as you're led, because God loves a willing and cheerful giver. No compulsion, no arm twisting. We want hearts that are moved to give, not compelled to give. All right, now let's turn to the structure itself. Okay, so I actually paced this off. Me and Pastor David were working it in this room. The tabernacle, the courtyard of the tabernacle was about 150 feet by 75 feet. So the length from the back of the sanctuary there to there is about 150 feet. So if you get in your head that there was a big walled courtyard and it ran for this, it's about, it was about 80 feet from that side there of the transept to this side. So it's a little bit in. So imagine that's the, big, that's the size that we're talking for the courtyard, okay? At one end of the courtyard, so we're, it would actually be east, but I'm going to pretend like it's we're fa- I'm facing west, so it's going to be west. So imagine you're coming in. As soon as you would come into that courtyard, there would be a great bronze altar, okay? This altar was square. It had horns at each corner. Uh, it was where the sacrifices took place. Animals were killed. Their blood was placed on the horns. The anim- animal was then burned up as an ascension offering or dismembered as part of a sin offering or guilt offering. And there was an altar, and then behind the altar, moving farther in, was uh, the lava, this big bowl where they would cleanse the vessels used um, in all of the temple or the tabernacle service, okay? And they were made of sturdy bronze because they're outdoors in order to withstand the elements. So then as you're moving in, you eventually get to a large tent, 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. So 45 feet, uh, you see this big... um, where the, the stained glass starts, that, the wood arch thing right there. From about there to about here is about 45 feet. Okay, so that's about how big that tent is, and it's divided into two sections. If you run from that, that arch up there up to about the table, that's about ha- uh, two-thirds of it, and that was the holy place, and then the rest of it up to here would be the most holy place. And that tent, which is about 15 feet high, so... There, from where I'm at, you. So I'm, I'm tall enough right here. Okay, so right, right about here, Uh, 15 feet high would be overlaid with four different types of material. Okay, so the outermost was an animal skin. We don't actually know specifically. It's a funny word. Um, I think your translation, the ESV translates it as goat skin, but probably it was actually dolphin skin is what a number of the commentators seem to think. So dolphin skin, under that was ram skin that was dyed red, under that was goat's hair skin, and then finally, fine linen woven in with blue, scarlet, and purple linen. uh, And that was woven together with images of cherubim facing inward. So does that make sense? So you got these cherubim under the tent. Uh, The structure itself was made with these straight boards of acacia wood overlaid with gold, parallel bars holding it together. The front door had five pillars with curtain separating a fine linen, so it'd be a a curtain that you could then pass through. And as you enter the tabernacle, there's cherubim at various levels all all around the building. Uh, You also find, as you would walk in, three items of furniture. On the right, as you were coming in, so that would be this side, you would find the table of the bread of the presence. On the left, you'd find a golden lampstand, and in the middle, there would be the altar of incense. Okay, so lampstand, sh- uh, sorry, showbread, lampstand, altar of incense, and then you would come to another dark purple curtain, and you get to the most holy place, and you would go in, and there's one thing in that tent, the Ark of the Covenant. So, that's the structure. So, you got, you got it kind of in your head, the size of it, relatively speaking, about 15 feet, so about from right there to about right there was the width, going back, that's this tent, what do we make of this structure as a whole? what's What's the big picture symbolism? I got three kind of big picture ones, and then we'll look at the worship. Number one, this tabernacle is a mobile Mount Sinai. This is interesting, right? At Mount Sinai, this is the passage we looked at last week actually, there's an altar at the base of the mountain where the people offered sacrifices, and then God invited Moses, Joshua, and the priests and the elders up the mountain, and halfway up, The elders and the priests had to stop, and they had to worship God from afar. Last week, Pastor Kenny talked about how they saw under his feet uh, this this, uh, sapphire clear something, and they ate and drank halfway up the mountain. And then Moses alone, along with Joshua, so Moses is going up, Joshua's assistant goes with him, is invited up to the summit on the very top of the mountain where God's glory cloud waited in fire and smoke. And so Moses drew near to God to hear from Him and receive the law and the instructions for worship. That's how that mountain was structured. At the bottom, there's this altar. Halfway up is where the elders stop, and then all the way up is where Moses went. If you think about that progression up, if you just lay that horizontal, you've got the tabernacle. The tabernacle layout mimics that mountain structure. As you proceed from the altar to the lava, from the lava to the holy place and into the most holy place, it's like you're ascending the mountain of God. In fact, the white linens overlaid with the cherubim are kind of like clouds, like the the imagery that you should be thinking is like we're going up into the clouds and then there's these angelic beings who are here around the throne of God. Thus, when the people of Israel leave the holy mountain, which they will do in numbers, we'll get there someday. When the people of Israel leave the holy mountain to continue their journey, they're gonna take the mountain with them so that they continue to meet with God. So, that's number one. That structure as a whole is a a mobile Mount Sinai. But not only that, it's also a reminder and a microcosm of creation. It's a return to Eden. That lampstand in there is shaped like a tree with seven branches coming out and buds at the end reminding us of the tree of life. The garden in Eden is like the most holy place where God met with Adam and Eve. The cherubim on the walls and over the mercy seat remind us of the cherubim who guard the garden after man's sin. And there's other echoes of Genesis 1-3 to which we'll see in the coming weeks so that we'll see that this construction of this building is like a new creation and a return to God's presence. That's the second. So it's a mobile Mount Sinai, it's a new creation, and finally, this earthly tabernacle is patterned after the heavenly one. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, you shall make it. 25 verse 9. The earthly tent reflects the true tabernacle, the true house of God in the heavenly places. So there's like a, a spiritual, invisible version of this, some kind, like it's reflected in this earthly building. It, it's meant, this earthly building then is meant to teach Israel and us about who God is and how we are to worship Him. And so then what do we learn about God and how we are to worship Him from the structures and furnishings of this building? I've got a few of these. Number one, God is unapproachably holy. In this structure, there are different zones of holiness reflecting different degrees of glory. It's even in the materials that are used. As you work your way out, it starts with bronze, and then you go to silver, and then you go to gold. Everything inside eventually is gonna be gold. The the walls are gonna be overlaid with gold, The, um, the mercy seat is overlaid, everything's gold, but outside it's bronze. And so as you're working your way in, it's greater degrees of glory reflected in the materials because you're moving closer and closer to where God is. God's presence is at the center in the most holy place. Only the high priest enters and only once a year. Then the holy place where the priests tend the golden lampstand, make sure the lamp's still burning, the altar of incense, make sure the incense is always going up and replacing the bread of the presence every week. And then you get to the courtyard where the people offer their worship and the Levites tend the bronze altar of sacrifice that enables God to dwell among his people despite their sin. So the entire structure of the tabernacle reminds us of God's holiness and His glory and the necessity of blood to make your way into His presence. And This is why I asked what I did at the beginning. The zones of holiness remind us worship is serious. It's even dangerous. If you entered a zone without proper authorization, without appropriate preparation and cleansing, God's presence would break out in judgment and people would die. In the book of Numbers, we find that this is so serious that the Levites, the ones charged with this, taking care of this building, they carry swords. And the reason they carry swords is to kill people who are trying to enter where they ought not be. And the reason they have to do that, the reason they have to guard it is that if someone unclean crosses the wrong threshold, God might break out in judgment on his people. Worship is serious because God is unapproachably holy and we are sinners. Second, what else do we see about worship? God demands that we cleanse ourselves. That bronze lava in the courtyard is where the various vessels were cleansed and set apart for holy use. The, the, the items that used, they couldn't just be common everyday things, they had to be consecrated, set apart, dedicated, and therefore required regular cleansing, lest their impurity call forth judgment from a holy God. Third, not only though, is God holy, and not only does He require cleansing, God is a provider. That's what tabernacle tells us. That's what that bread is meant to signify. God gave the people manna from heaven, and God kept 12 loaves of bread in the holy place, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and reminding them, "God will take care of you. He will. He will take care of you. He's a holy God, but He's your God, and He will care for you. Number four, God is our light and our life. The lampstand is in the shape of this tree with seven branches, each branch capped with a bud that was lit. And there's a reminder of the tree of life that was originally set in the Garden of Eden, the tree that promised life to God's people if they would trust and obey Him. And then there's light coming out from the lampstand in the holy place so the priests could see the beauty and carry out their service in God's presence. Fifth, what else do we see from the tabernacle and its structures? God desires our prayers. Throughout the Scriptures, prayers are compared to incense, which rises as a pleasing aroma to God's throne. And thus the oils and the spices that were burned at the altar represented the prayers and petitions of God's people. So, from blood to water to bread to light and life. And then you, so you're coming in. You got blood and you got water at the the lava. Then you got bread, you got light, you got life. You get all the way in and you get to the farthest place that most people can go, everybody but the high priest. And what do you find? At the threshold of the holiest place on earth, fragrant incense offered as a pleasing aroma to God, representing the prayers of his people. God wants you to pray. Sixth. This is the biggest one. Yes, God is most holy. And yes he but he does desire to dwell with his people. And he does so in sovereign mercy. You heard it, right? Inside the most holy place there's only one object, the ark of the covenant. It's a wooden box, overlaid gold inside and out. Golden poles to carry it and those poles never should never come out because you they all you're only supposed to carry it. It's going to be important later in the Bible that's on poles, and you carry it. You don't put it on a cart, okay? So you carry it on poles, and inside the ark, God puts the testimony, the Ten Commandments, written on two tablets of stone with the finger of God Himself. And the fact that there are two tablets is significant. Like normally in the ancient world when a covenant would be cut between two parties, you'd make two copies. This makes sense, right? We do this today when we're doing contracts, right? So if I make it a contract with you, I, I, I sign a copy, I sign two copies, one for me and one for you. You take one, I take one, so we both have a record. Similar in the ancient world. You have a covenant, we have, I have one copy and the other nation has another copy and we both go put it in our special place where we store such things, right? The filing cabinet, no. We, we go put it, the covenant where it's supposed to be. In Israel, in their temple, with this covenant that God made with His people, both copies go before God's presence. Two copies are made, one for God, one for the people. Both are in God's presence as a reminder of His sovereign commitment to His people. On the top of that box, that golden box, is a special lid with bands of gold threaded around it, two cherubims sitting on top with wings covering their downcast faces. And this is the mercy seat, the seat of propitiation. It's the footstool of God, the place where His glory dwells. And here again, we see the uniqueness of Israel's worship in its own context. In most temples in the ancient world, if you go into the temple and you pass all the way through and you get all the way to the center, what will you find? You would find an image, an idol. You would find a statue made of silver or gold or wood or something in the, in the center representing the deity. In God's house, you get to the center, and here's what you find, an ark, essentially a throne, and on the throne, nothing, nothing made anyway, nothing created, no image at the center of this temple. Instead, here is the seat, not of an idol representing a god, but the bright cloud of glory signifying the presence of Yahweh Himself. The living God, not a dead idol at the center. The living God in his holy presence. Here we are at the center in the holiest place on earth and Yahweh the holy God sits enthroned on a seat of mercy, on a throne of grace. Yes, he's holy, yes, he requires blood to enter in, to his mobile palace, yes, if sacrifices are not made or if the people rebel with a high hand, he does break out in wrath and judgment. But all of these instructions, the entire complex is constructed so that a holy God can dwell with an unholy people in mercy, because this God is the creator and sustainer of life and the God of all grace. And in all of these acts, this is what we know, This is what we know. That's what we learn from the tabernacle, but we know as New Covenant Christians, in all of these acts and all of these structures, Christ Himself is figured forth. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He's the Lamb offered at the bronze altar. He is the water that cleanses and consecrates. He is the life and light from the golden tree. He is the bread from heaven. He is the beloved Son who pleases His Father. He is the great high priest who passes through the heavenly tent, enters into the ultimate most holy place on our behalf. He is the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls who's gone where we could not, who has approached the true mercy seat on our behalf so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Reverence? Yes. Holy fear, yes, but also with confidence. You don't come to church terrified of what might happen because you're welcome here. All the way in. All the way in. Christ has made that old covenant worship with its gradations of holiness obsolete. We don't have to build an earthly tent and sacrifice animals and cleanse our vessels and keep the lampstand and incense burning in order to rightly worship God. Christ has made all earthly worship heavenly. And we see how this obsolete worship still informs and influences what we do each week here. Each week, God invites the weak and the poor and the sinners into his holy presence because he's a God of mercy. Each week, we confess our sins to him and seek forgiveness by the blood of Jesus, just as Israel did on that altar. Each week, God assures us of his pardon and his cleansing. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness, just as that bronze laver cleansed the vessels of the tabernacle and set them apart for holy use. And each week, we seek life and light from God in his word, just as that lampstand reminded Israel of God's light and life. And presence. And each week we offer prayers to God in faith, hoping that they will be a pleasing aroma to Him, acceptable to Him, like that incense from the altar. And each week we eat with Him. Just as the priest would eat the bread of the presence each week before replacing it for another six days. And this brings us to the table where a holy God still invites an unclean people to eat with Him at a table of grace. But you don't have to stand far off. We don't make our offerings in the courtyard and wonder about what goes on inside. We don't fear the danger of God's presence and zones of holiness. We have been brought near into the very presence, into the heavenly holy of holies because we come in the name of Jesus. And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Invite the pastors to come. As they do each week, we'll distribute the elements Um, And we'll take and eat them together. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.